Our great Father in heaven, blessed be your name tonight. We're delighted to gather and study your word about a, an important issue of our time. So we pray you bless our Bible study, give us grace and wisdom to, to, to study, to teach, to learn. And we just have a blessed time in your word. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, jumping right into it tonight, we're not quite yet resuming our normal Wednesday night study, currently on the doctrines of grace. We'll do that next week. But tonight, a little bit random, I guess you could say. I've been getting lots of, relatively lots of questions the past several, you know, two, three, four months from different people here and there, all about a similar topic has to do with spiritual gifts featured in the charismatic movement. And again, a lot of questions of people asking me, like, why don't we believe that way at this church? Or why don't we, like, practice these gifts like a lot of churches do today? And most have asked me on behalf of their charismatic friends. Like, they want to talk to their charismatic friends and love, but they don't feel equipped to, like, really handle the issue. Maybe, maybe this describes you as well. I find that a lot of Christians who aren't persuaded with the whole charismatic issue, they kind of intuitively think something's off. But if you were to challenge them to say, well, biblically, how would you say that it's it, it's a you know the, how would you you know build your case that you know why you don't practice the gifts like so many do today and it seems like more and more churches go down that road and just what's the biblical case for why we're we're not a charismatic church well anyway as you guys know when i get several people asking me that the same question i often respond but just teaching on it figuring that more than one people probably have the question that aren't even asking and and anyway everyone could benefit from the answer from a little teaching on it so that's what we're going to do tonight, just because it fit. We've had a break for a while, and before we get back into the thick of our regular study, I figured we could just do a quick one-timer here on Wednesday night. So no, I'm not going to turn this into like a series. It'll just be a single lesson, a single shot, but hopefully just laying out the simple but biblical case for why we're not a charismatic church. Simple as that. Hopefully, though, this will help answer some of your questions and equip you at the same time to at the least just... Explain to your charismatic friends why you're not convinced by their claims and, and share with them in love some of the problems you might have with, with the movement for our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's begin with a quick note on what they believe. What, what, what is the difference? What, what's, what's the real distinction here that we're talking about and that many are wondering about? And a quick side note, I'm using the term charismatic pretty broadly. I understand Pentecostals, that they're different. There are some differences here. But generally, I'm just going to use the term to refer to those who believe in the continuation of the sign gifts. And speaking of, you know, they've got the speaking gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I trust that's not a new subject to you. Speaking gifts like evangelism, teaching, exhortation. Serving gifts like helps, mercy, administration, giving. Everybody agrees on these. There's no, no drama there, no conflict there. It comes to, to do with this third category, which you might call the sign gifts, prophecy, healing, miracles, and tongues. And this is where many in the past hundred years have come to uh, part ways and disagree a bit. The basic contention of the charismatic movement, like I said, broadly defined, is simply claiming to be a more biblical movement that closely reflects the early church, that, that more reflects the church of the New Testament. Because when you need, read the New Testament, as I trust you've done, you see Christians practicing all of the spiritual gifts. They're not leaving a third of them out. You read the book of Acts, you find Christians prophesying and speaking in tongues and healing, performing miracles. These miraculous gifts were given by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the church and as signs to unbelievers. And the church still needs edification and unbelievers still need signs. 
Then to cap it off, these gifts were never said to expire in the New Testament. There's no indication that the miraculous gifts would die out when the apostles die out, they would contend. The Bible never tells us that these gifts would cease in the first century. Therefore, we should not expect these gifts to, uh, or we should rather expect these gifts to still be around throughout the whole church era. This is the, the basic contention of the charismatic movement. Like, wh- why should they be gone? And 1900 or so, they were rediscovered and they made a resurgence. And here we are today, 100 years later, and it's really traveled the globe and become quite a large movement. So overall, though, you can see how the charismatic movement actually claims to hold the high ground on Scripture. They claim that they're actually a more biblical movement and that they're taking the church back to the early church and resembling more what the New Testament church looked like, exploring all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, resembling more the book of Acts. They also claim to hold the high ground on the Holy Spirit. You might often hear them say, like, well, we don't, we don't put God in a box. We don't put Holy Spirit in the box. The Holy Spirit takes center stage in the movement. And whereas they would contend, you know, the churches today have, they're devoid of the power of the Spirit. They have it. And so they really, they claim this higher ground of more spiritual and even more biblical. So on the surface, at least, I can see why many Christians would feel maybe intimidated or ill-equipped to respond to charismatics. Because it's true that when you read the book of Acts, Christians are using these gifts, all of the gifts. That's true. And it's true that there's no single silver bullet verse in the New Testament that teaches these gifts are going to die out when the apostles died out. That There's no proof text for it. That's true as well. And so it might seem like they do hold the high ground on, on Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Why don't we do things like they did in the book of Acts entirely and reflect the early church entirely? Why should we be any different? But to this we'd say not, not so fast. There is a great irony here because one of the fruits of the charismatic movement that they're not known for is you know, really serious Bible study. And when you really seriously study the New Testament, you actually find a very different picture of the spiritual gifts between how they're practiced today and how they were practiced in the early church. You find quite a disparity, actually. And for all they might say about reflecting the, the, the church in the early days— You find that the gifts employed by the charismatic church today do not reflect the sign gifts employed by the early church. So now let's move on. You get the basic difference. We could go on for a long time about that, but it's just it comes down to the sign gifts, prophecy, tongues, healings, miracles, these these miraculous gifts in nature at least. Are they still around or not? Do we expect God to be empowering individuals to possess these gifts like he did in the first century in the early church or not? And that's, you know, yes or no, there's your answer, which side you're going to land on. Now for us, though, we're going to move next to, I guess you could say on, on the offense a little bit, the case against continuationism. And that word just means those who believe that these gifts are all still in operation today. And so I, I want to show you just, it's really simple, actually, the case against continuationism, basically why we don't buy it, why we don't buy all the gifts that are supposedly going on today. And it comes down to this, a simple one-liner for you, the practice of sign gifts today doesn't match the practice of sign gifts in the New Testament. Simple as that. I mean, we're going to talk about that, but it, it is as simple as that. The practice of sign gifts today does not match the practice of these gifts in the New Testament, really at all. And we're going to talk about that. If charismatics claim to be biblical, that this movement is biblically driven, 
Well, then their exercise of these spiritual gifts, it should match the exercise of these gifts in the New Testament, right? But they don't at all. And this is what I want to show you now. Let's pick on the, the big three, prophecy, tongues, and healing. Prophecy, tongues, and healing, one by one. Let's start with prophecy. Prophecy defined in the New Testament. Prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit can be defined as the divine enablement of receiving and communicating direct verbal revelation from God to man. It's a revelatory gift. You receive direct revelation from God and you communicate this verbal direct revelation from God. It's revelation. Preach, or, uh, prophecy is distinguished from the gift of teaching in a couple ways. One, there's a future element in prophecy sometimes, not always. But often prophecy came with a predictive element where the prophet was also foretelling and foretelling about the future at the same time. Teaching, of course, has no future element like that. Also, the gift of teaching is based on God's written revelation, whereas the gift of prophecy is based on verbal revelation. The prophet receives direct revelation from God and communicates it verbally, whereas the teacher receives, has received written revelation from God, the Bible, and merely communicates that to his audience. So there's your distinction. So when it comes to prophecy, not teaching, but prophecy in the Old Testament and New Testament, there are several clear hallmarks, namely prophecy in the Bible is always infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and binding. It's, there, there's no exceptions when you just study prophecy in the Bible. It's infallible, it's inerrant, but there's no error involved. It's authoritative, it's binding. Prophets were men who spoke from God, and they often said, thus says the Lord. They didn't say, I think this is what the Lord says. It's like, this is what the Lord is saying to you. It's a clear declaration of God's revelation. Such that to disobey a prophet was to disobey God. It came with the same authority. The prophet's words were God's words. So if you disobey anything the prophet says, you're disobeying God. That was the, uh, the level of the office. A true prophet also was never wrong. He didn't always have predictive prophecy involved, but when it was, for a true prophet, it always came to f- true fruition. It was always fulfilled. But this is all in distinction to prophecy in the charismatic movement today which has these hallmarks. It's fallible, errant, non-authoritative, and non-binding. And they they admit this. They admit that it's a second-tier prophecy. It's not infallible. It's not necessarily authoritative or binding. has to be compared to Scripture. Prophecy today is more of an impression from God. Like, I got this impression from God. It could be wrong, though. It can be mixed with error, they say. Quote, a potentially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. It's not authoritative, therefore not binding. It has to be evaluated by scripture, and then it receives its authority as it's cross-checked. Think about some of the fatal flaws of this, where prophecy is, is an impression of the Holy Spirit on a person's heart, that you know, you're getting this impression of revelation. How do you distinguish between your own thoughts and God's thoughts? It's really all experience-based. It's a completely subjective. It's based on just, I feel this is what God said to me. But think about this. In the Bible, when a prophet receives a word from God, is he ever mistaken under like, you know, I wonder if God's talking to me or not. There's never a mistake about it. Like this, this is revelation from God. A true prophet was never in doubt that God was speaking to and through him. 
And that's because prophecy is never described as a feeling or an impression from the Lord. It is always direct revelation, an unmistakable word from the Lord. And you don't get that type of prophecy today. Like I said, it's, it's these subjective impressions. Like, I feel the Lord is telling me that you're going to prosper this next week, or this next week you're going to get that job opportunity you've been looking for. And it's all this subjective, unverifiable stuff that it's not thus says the Lord. Now, some, some dabble in the thus says the Lord stuff and try and make predictions. And, and this is why there's just nonstop list of false prophecy and prophecies that don't come true. I mean, just go down the list of the top prophets today and you'll find many examples of where their, their prophecy didn't come true. You may remember in the Old Testament, the penalty for any prophet who made a declaration and it didn't come true was death. And that sounds serious, but it just shows how serious God takes it when people claim to be speaking for him and communicating divine revelation. Charismatics today understand that prophecy today is not the same as it was in the New Testament, that it can be fallible. So they try really hard, actually. Wayne Grudem, for example, if you know that systematic theology is one of the most famous ones, argues for this fallible type of prophecy that can be mistaken, that can have error. But just show me that in the Bible, where there's such a thing as fallible, errant prophecy from God in the Bible. And you won't, because that's the whole point. The prophet was speaking from God. That's the whole function of the prophet. And he's, he's speaking from God, and God is without error. God is not going to give an erroneous message or a fallible prophecy. Men spoke from God. First Peter 4.11 speaks of prophets and teachers. And for the prophet says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. These aren't man's thoughts or man's words or man's impressions. These are men speaking from God through the Holy Spirit, direct revelation. Then you have the whole problem, of course, is if prophecy today really is direct revelation, it would therefore, by definition, come with the same authority as Scripture. This is, if you're saying this is direct revelation from God, it is just as authoritative and binding as Scripture. And they have trouble with that. They understand the problem because why aren't we adding to the Bible? Why aren't we writing this down? I want to know what God has authoritatively said for the church today. I want, I want a compendium to the Bible. And they understand that problem, which is why they argue for this lower prophecy. But that's the whole problem. That's just not the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. That's something else. But it's not the gift of prophecy according to the New Testament. And then finally, you have to ask, what's the value of such unauthoritative fallible prophecy what's the point that there's no value if you have prophecy that could be wrong it could be mistaken has to be evaluated by scripture it actually makes it quite irrelevant why not just stick with scripture why not just just start with the bible and end with the bible it's rather irrelevant this impression you got if it could be wrong it's not binding or authoritative how about i just stick with the sufficiency of scripture which god has given to equip me for every good work everything we need for life and godliness is there and uh well there's prophecy for you overall the gift and prophecy employed in the charismatic movement today doesn't match the gift of prophecy in the old testament or the new testament biblical prophecy was always authoritative infallible inerrant revelation often predictive none of these things are true today a huge disparity secondly let's talk about tongues as i turn on the air and i'll leave it up to you guys but if you want to turn on the back too some of you will feel it but john i can give it to you put it in your hands 
You, you, yep. That one didn't turn on. Hit that on button on that one for again. Well, tongues now. Tongues can be defined as the divine enablement to speak in real human language that had not been previously learned. The divine enablement to speak in real human language that had not been previously learned. And the, the key hallmark of tongues in the New Testament, every instance of tongues in the Bible, is someone speaking a, a real human language that they had not previously learned. And the key phrase, real human language. Not gibberish, not rumbling and bumbling of consonants, but real human language. I'm not going to study every passage, but do your own study. Every instance of tongues in the New Testament is a real human language. In the New Testament and in ancient Greek writings, every time the word glossa or glossalia in the Greek was used, that's the word for tongues, literally, it was always used in reference to real known human languages, not these gibberish sounds or ecstatic utterances. So Acts chapter 2, the first time, Pentecost, the crowds heard the apostles in the upper room speak, and they heard what? Their own languages. They heard all their own dialects. They were all gathered from all around the Roman Empire, and they heard all their different real languages spoken by these different men. And that's the point. It was a sign that could be understood, because clearly this guy doesn't know Egyptian or whatever, and here he is speaking it. Even Max, by the way, admit that in Acts 2... And in the book of Acts, the examples are all real human languages. The crowd understood meaningful languages made up of words and sentences, not this mindless repetition of consonants and just sounds. Keep in mind, in that day, there were pagan cults, lots of them, and they were characterized by ecstatic utterances. They would just they would do what kind of sounds like t- tongues today, just random consonants and syllables. They call them, like I said, ecstatic utterances. And there's words in the Greek to describe ecstatic utterances. This, you know, what, what you've heard of tongues today is just the, the mumbling of syllables. What's important, though, is every time you use in the New Testament, Paul and the other authors never use those words. They always use glossolia and dialectos, dialects, words that refer to real human languages. So the case is crystal clear from the New Testament as you study it further. Tongues was always real human languages. And it's a, what a miraculous gift. You never learned Chinese and you now just suddenly speak in Chinese. What a sign. What a powerful sign it would be to someone who, who knows that you never learned Chinese before, for example. But of course, what is the gift of tongues today? One charismatic source defines it, quote, It's the ability to pray in a heavenly language to encourage your spirit and commune with God, end quote. The key phrase is basically your private prayer language. But what's the language? It's a heavenly language, which for them means it's really no language at all. It is this ecstatic utterance. You you might call it gibberish or just a, a, a stream of consonants. It's not a language, though. It's just ecstatic utterance. Already, though, that should give you pause because that we don't find that in the New Testament. There's never an example of that in the New Testament, yet that's exclusively how tongues is defined today. So that's already quite a difference, right? Now to this, Charismatics will quickly point out 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, which Paul says, you know, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but don't have love, so on and so forth. So they'll say, here, there, there's an example, the tongues of angels, right? There's the heavenly language. That's what we're talking about. This is a heavenly language. So let's talk about that briefly. Do angels have a separate heavenly language? 
The answer is maybe. We don't know. There's zero evidence for it, though. In the New Testament, when people spoke in tongues, like I said, there's never an example of them speaking in this heavenly language. It was always known human languages. Also, every time angels communicate in the Bible, they never show up talking in an angel language. They always show up talking in real, known human languages. So there's just no evidence for it. However, let's just pretend there is. Let's just grant the argument that there is an angel language. And that 1 Corinthians 13, 1 really does refer to a language that the angels speak. In fact, I really don't have a problem thinking angels have their own language, for example. I could easily imagine angels speaking the same language Adam and Eve spoke in the beginning, long before there was Hebrew and Greek. And what, did Adam, what language did Adam and Eve speak? We don't know. It's just an ancient language that's gone. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what angels spoke. So let's just grant the argument. Let's say there's a true heavenly language. But you see, it still doesn't support charismatic tongues today. That's because even if this is some angelic language, it's, if, if that's true, it's still a real language used for communication. Which means it has what? It has an alphabet. It has a vocabulary. It's put together with syntax that governs, it, governs its subjects and objects and verbs and nouns and so forth. So here's the point. If tongues today is really this heavenly language, well, over time, we should be able to learn it. We should learn the language. That's what we can do with linguistics. You just hear it over enough and you can start mapping it out. So what's the heavenly language word for water? What's the, in, in heavenly tongues, what's the word for church or the word for Christ? You see what I'm saying here? But of course, you ask as the charismatics, no two would ever agree. There's no vocabulary. It's not a real language. They have no choice but to contend that this heavenly language is really no language at all. But this, again, this random mishmash of, of syllables and sounds that has no meaning. But understand, there's nothing miraculous about that. You could pay someone to do that. And I've heard so many testimonies of people basically just working themselves up to say syllables to go with the flow because they felt pressured in like you have to speak in tongues. And so they do it. But that's not a sign to an unbeliever. That's nothing miraculous about that. And God is not a God of confusion and chaos, but of order. It really, to me at least, they can argue that, but I find that not compelling whatsoever. And to make matters worse, Pentecostals, not necessarily charismatics, but Pentecostals, claim that all Christians should speak in tongues. They say it's the necessary sign of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. But that's just a, a straight-up direct contradiction to Scripture, where 1 Corinthians 12.30 says, not all will speak in tongues. It's just literally what it says, 1 Corinthians 12.30, not all will speak in tongues. We should never expect it to be normative for the whole church. Of course, in charismatic circles, tongues gets the greatest emphasis. You haven't arrived until you've spoken in tongues, and there's a lot of pressure to do so. But they give the impression that tongues should be normative. It's, it's what we're after for the, the ultimate Christian experience. It's your very own personal, private prayer language with God. But that's simply not what the New Testament teaches. Both in form and in function, their practice of tongues today is just not the New Testament practice of tongues. There's, again, there's a disparity. They have a second tier, a lower tier use of tongues that doesn't match the Bible. And lastly, healing. The gift of healing. The gift of healing can be defined as a divine enablement to restore the sick to immediate health without a necessary faith response by the one being healed. Just healing the sick 
immediately, supernaturally, without medical means. Gift of healing. Some of the hallmarks of the gift of healing. It, in the New Testament, every example in the New Testament, it is immediate, full, abundant, and undeniable. Every time. Immediate, full, abundant, and undeniable. Some examples. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Matthew eight sixteen, When evening came, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Matthew nine thirty five. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the king- kingdom, and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Lastly, Matthew 15, 30 through 31. I mean, there's a lot of examples. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. They laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. And the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So again, notice every example, it's immediate. There's no real time lapse. It's instantaneous healing. Not talking about, you know, naturally getting better, like you break your arm, and it's going to be healed. It'll take weeks and months. This was instantaneous healing. It was full. It's not partial. He didn't take the blind and give them poor eyesight. I mean, they had 20-20 vision. This was the crippled. You're not, you're not walking with a limp. You're perfect walking. Your limb is regrown. Your leprosy is 100% gone. This is full healing. It's abundant. Every kind of disease was healed by Jesus. There were no exceptions. Even to us, I'd say top of our list is probably blindness and, and, you know, leprosy and just like that, gone, cured, healed. Every kind of disease, though. And he left no one out. There are examples where he basically wipes out disease from an entire town as they bring them all the sick. And there, no, one was, no one left unhealed. Lastly, undeniable. Even unbelievers witnessed these healings and marveled. The Pharisees, the scribes, they hated Jesus. They saw the healings. And if you, if you study the New Testament, you recognize they never deny his actual healings. The only thing they can do, their only tactic is to attribute his power to Satan. But they can't deny the power. It's so evident. It's so undeniable. He's healing everybody. We can't deny it. But you're doing it from Satan and demons. Remember that in Matthew 12 and 13? Of course, is that what we get today with the gift of healing? This is not at all what the gift of healing looks like today. The gift of healing today is not immediate, it's not full, it's not abundant, and it's for sure not undeniable. Healings today do not cover every kind of ailment. They're always minor subjective ailments like a backache or a toothache or something like that. There's no clear objective healings for all to see, even unbelievers. There's no undeniable healings. No one's been cured from AIDS. That's being documented. The blind are not seeing. The crippled are not having their limbs regrown. So many testimonies of quadriplegics going to healing services and coming home. Quadriplegics every single time. Countless exposés of phony healing services. I mean, just think about it. We live in an age where everybody carries a camera in their pocket. There's this unprecedented age of documentation. So if the gift of healing today... It's like it was back then. It's just a matter of time before someone documents someone with the real gift of healing and, and someone who's truly blind and now sees. This, these videos should be all over YouTube. 
I mean, think about the stir it caused in the age of Christ and the apostles. It was like mind-blowing. Everybody was talking about it. But today, it's, it's obviously, that's not what you get, uh, not even close. So like, healing today doesn't match the character of healing in the New Testament at all. And it also doesn't match the form of the gift of healing. Today, healing is not defined as a supernatural enablement of a person to miraculously heal. Rather, the gift of healing today is basically defined as praying over the sick. It's been somehow swapped where healing just means praying, laying hands on the sick. But this is actually one of the biggest misunderstandings I run into today with people about healing. Because they say, like, you guys aren't a charismatic church. You don't believe in, in God's power to heal. And I'm like, that's not true. We, we pray for healing all the time. I pray for sick people all the time. I'd lay hands on them and pray for them to get healed every day. No problem with that. That's just, that's not the gift of healing, though. That's just praying for the sick. And that's why all Christians are supposed to do it. It's not a gift. You don't need a gift to do it. We're all called to pray for the sick. And, and that's the, pro, the point of it is just that's just not the gift of healing. In fact, there's many instances where healing in the New Testament does not involve prayer. No prayers were involved. The gifted healer merely spoke and the person was healed. Jesus, the apostles, many times they didn't pray. They just spoke and you're healed. No prayer involved. Now, of course, faith healers today will give a caveat. Well, I can't heal someone, though, unless they have sufficient faith. Right? You've got to have the faith to be healed. I'm sure you've heard this. But again, this is not the picture of the New Testament, bottom line. There are several examples in the New Testament of Jesus and the apostles healing people who had no faith. Like the leper in Matthew 8, the lame man in John 5, the 10 lepers in Luke 17. Nine of them were unbelieving, right? Acts 28, Paul lands on a pagan island and heals these pagans of all their disease. They're not believing. And also you have to throw in, you know, faith healers today. When they get sick, what happens? They don't get healed. What does that say about their own faith? What, do they not have the faith to heal themselves? But again, I don't want to like make fun of these people, but there's countless examples of faith healers getting a tragic illness like cancer, but they don't get healed and they die because they don't have the gift of healing. So overall, though, I hope you see prophecy, tongues, healing, and even the just quick survey approach, some problems with the, the charismatic gifts today. None of these sign gifts resemble their New Testament counterparts. Charismatics have effectively created a two-tier approach to the gifts. The New Testament tier and then today. And today they're all secondary. They're all a lower level of the gifts. They can argue all they want for fallible prophecy, gibberish, tongues, and prayer healing. But at least to me, just not convincing or compelling in the least. Because... It just doesn't match the picture of the gifts in the New Testament. It it really is simple as that. Their use of the gifts is not biblical and actually doesn't resemble the early church. So the bottom line response to to a a charismatic, why we're not a charismatic church, is just the sign gifts, they're not being practiced today. That's it. It It's like we we don't see the sign gifts in practice in the church today, just like we haven't seen them for the past 1900 years. The church unanimously has seen that these gifts have passed away for the past, well, 1,900 years minus the past 100 when they claim to have been uh, revived. In other words, look, just show me the true gifts and I'll believe. 
The person is gifted by the Holy Spirit. Show me a Christian who has the gift of healing, who can heal the blind in an undeniable way. The person who's never learned Russian and they speak Russian. Show me the signs. These signs are meant to be obvious, undeniable, even to believers. So this should be obvious stuff. And it's just not. Show me. I want you to understand, I'm actually not a strict cessationist in the sense that I believe it's technically impossible for the gifts to come back. In fact, I lean toward the view that the gifts will make some return in the tribulation period, seven-year tribulation. You can make that case from Revelation 11, at least with the two witnesses. So I'm not like a, a strict cessationist. That's impossible, but it's just, sh- show me. You have to understand, we're, we're not afraid of the signed gifts. We're not ashamed of the signed gifts. We love the signed gifts. I marvel at the signed gifts. I think it'd be so wonderful if the signed gifts were in operation today. If someone could really have the gift of healing, could clear out a hospital, the gift of tongues or prophecy. We live in a postmodern world that denies miracles. So how powerful and stunning would it be to perform a true work like this in front of an unbeliever? It would be a real sign. And they would listen to the gospel and Lord willing be saved. In God's wisdom, though, it's not in his plan for the church age, which I'm going to explain next. But that, it's as simple as that, though. Bottom line, if you believe otherwise, the burden of proof, it's actually on you. You have to prove otherwise. It's the charismatic movement which needs to prove that what they're doing is biblical. They need to prove that they have gifts that match the New Testament gifts. But, of course, they don't. They can't because they're not being found. They're not in operation today. They have to settle for these secondary gifts, which they do. But to me, at least, it's not compelling. It's not convincing in the least. I just, I just don't buy it. I'm not going to settle for these lesser gifts that just don't match the Bible because this is my authority. Now, we could end here and rest our case here by saying the burden of proof is on them. In reality, I don't need to prove why I reject the signed gifts. They need to prove why I should accept their version of the signed gifts. But we're not going to end quite yet. I'm going to say one more point, I guess you could say, to affirm and bolster our position. And that's because the New Testament actually gives us every reason to believe that these sign gifts were never meant to be normative for the church. In other words, we have the ability to perfectly explain why the sign gifts have not been observed for the past 1900 years. We're not just left scratching our heads like that's kind of weird. No, the New Testament explains it perfectly well. Not only can we say with one hand that we reject the charismatic movement simply because The gifts they practice is not the gifts in the New Testament. That's the one hand. But on top of that, on the other hand, we can fully explain from the Bible why we should not expect the sign gifts to be in operation throughout the church age. So let's do that now. This will be our last point. So we did the the case against cessationism. It's kind of going on the offensive. Let's now give you the case for cessationism, which means the gifts have ceased, cessationism. And this is more of the defensive. And here it all boils down to the purpose of the gifts, the purpose of the sign gifts, what we're going to talk about, the purpose of the sign gifts. When you actually study the Bible, it's stunning to realize there's only three very short periods in all of recorded history in the Bible where there have been miraculous gifts. The time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, the time of Jesus and the apostles. Those three short windows in history, we see these miracles and signs and wonders. Elsewhere, 
We don't. And at the same time, during those small windows, relatively few people had the ability to perform signs and wonders. So according to the Bible itself, just on that point, these miraculous gifts, they've never been normative. Understand that. They've actually never been normal. That's why they're called miraculous, like they're out of the ordinary. That's the point. It just begs the question, why? Why aren't they normative? And the answer is clear and consistent and has to do with the purpose of the gifts. Being this, the miraculous gifts were given by God as signs to authenticate his messengers. That's the point we're going to talk about. The miraculous gifts were given by God as signs to authenticate his messengers. I want to prove that to you. They all were meant to validate God's special spokesman. goes back to Moses. Moses, remember? God shows up to Moses in a burning bush and commissions him to, you know, let my people go. Send them, you know, send them to Pharaoh. Get, release the Jews. This grand commission to Moses, remember? And Moses says back to God, though, Exodus 4.1, he's like, he says this, what if the people will not believe me or listen to what I say? He's like, well, okay, you want me to go to the Jews, go to Pharaoh? Like, so I'm supposed to tell him, hey, the God of our fathers showed up to me in a burning bush and sent me here. Like, who's going to believe that? That's crazy. Why would they believe me? That's what Moses says. And that, that, that's a reasonable request to us. Well, God answers, and God responds to Moses. Remember what he says? Exodus 4, he continues. He told Moses, take your staff, throw it to the ground, and what happened? Turn into a snake. And then he says in Exodus 4, 5, God gave him this sign so that they may believe that the Lord has appeared to you. What's the purpose of that miracle? The sign of the staff to attest that Moses really was coming from God. He was God's spokesman. If you should listen to him, he has this verifiable power. The same goes with the 10 plagues, all the Pharaoh stuff. All those signs were given to authenticate Moses as God's spokesman. Signs and wonders always had a function of accompanying and uh, testifying to God's word. And when God was giving new revelation, like in the New Testament, for example, he made sure it came with authenticating signs and wonders. Think about Jesus now in the New Testament. Why did Jesus heal people? Why did he turn water into wine? Read the book of John. John famously records seven major signs that Jesus performs. And then he tells us the purpose of these signs, starting with water into wine, right? John 20, 30 through 31, we get the purpose of the signs. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. His signs were given to attest to him that he really is God's spokesman, even more so. He's God in flesh. He's the Messiah. But the point is, his signs and wonders, which were far and away above everyone else, were meant to authenticate him as coming from God. They verified him from God. Peter understood that, Acts 2.22. He preached Jesus. He says, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Jesus was attested as God's ultimate spokesman through miracles and wonders and signs. That's the purpose. And it's consistent to attest of God's spokesman. Same goes for the apostles. Who were the apostles? They were Christ's appointed representatives. They were his spokesman. He was going to ascend and leave. The Holy Spirit would come. 
These apostles would be his representatives on earth to build the church. They were to lay the foundation of the church. And it's no surprise then to find that the Lord gave them, through the Holy Spirit, the authenticating signs that come with God's spokesmen. This is exactly what Hebrews 2, 3 through 4 says. Listen, Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. It says, Now how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And speaking of that salvation, it says, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the apostles confirmed the gospel. He says, God also testifying with them, the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. If you catch that, it's crystal clear that the apostles, they verified the gospel of Jesus Christ and God testified through them by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is the function of these gifts. The purpose is to validate and testify that these people, they're really speaking from God. So you should listen to their message because God's real power is not in the miracles. It's in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. The message saves. God's priority is always on his word. How did God create with his word? Who is Jesus? The divine word made flesh. God's power is in his word. And the miracles, they just point you to the word. Listen to the word. Listen to the gospel. That's the point. Which you have to remember, especially with the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, God was making some changes. Right? They were going from Old Covenant Israel to New Covenant Church. Some big changes were taking place. And accordingly, God was giving tons of new revelation that they'd never heard before. Obviously revolving around Jesus. These were hard pills to swallow for Jews and Gentiles. Think about this truth that the Messiah has come. He's a, you know, this Jewish carpenter from no, you know, Podunk Town, Nazareth. He's God in flesh, but he's got to die on the cross first and rise from the dead. That was mind-blowing to the Jews. They were not expecting that, although they actually should have. Gentiles, this is like, this is dumb. Just dumb. And so this is hard to swallow. And then you're going to say that these uneducated fishermen, this group of uneducated fishermen from Galilee are his representatives. Why should we believe you? Why should we believe anything you have to say? Well, why did so many people believe? God gave these people the authenticating, powerful signs and wonders that accompany Apostles and prophets. So, more specifically, what was the purpose of the gift of healing? You ever wonder that? What's the purpose of the gift of healing? The primary purpose is not to bring about good health. That the purpose of the gift of healing primarily is not to bring about good health. Now, that's a mercy, of course. That, that's a secondary purpose. That's a great thing. But if the primary purpose of the gift of healing was to bring about good health... Jesus was a failure. That's because 100% of the people Jesus healed later got sick and died. So if his healing was just to bring good health, as a faith healer, he failed because they all got sick and died again. He didn't do anything. He just gave them a little more time, but I guess that's good. It is a mercy, but you see, that's not the purpose of healing. The primary purpose was to testify that this healer is from God, and he speaks for God, and you should listen to him. That's Acts chapter 3. Peter heals a crippled man. Everybody sees it, and they all rush to Peter and like, what do you have to say? We want to hear what you got to say. So he uses that to preach the gospel, and many are saved. 
That's the point. That's the purpose. Same goes for the gift of tongues. What's the purpose of the gift of tongues? 1 Corinthians 14, 22 says, Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Tongues is a sign for unbelievers. It's a, it's a miraculous sign to, to testify, wow, that's, this is truly miraculous, verified. You don't know this language. You're speaking this language. I can understand this language. You're a stranger. You don't know Korean. Now you're speaking it. That's a sign that they would now listen to the gospel preached and hear what you have to say and verify you're from God. So understand, this is the clear and consistent purpose of the gifts in the Old Testament and the New Testament primarily for authenticating and validating a spokesman for God. What does this mean for the continuation of the gifts today or the cessation of the gifts today? Well, just think about this. Most charismatics, they actually admit that even though they say they're trying to reproduce the early church, some things are different. They admit some things in the first century have ceased. For example, rich in Revelation, they admit that work of the Holy Spirit in giving written revelation has ceased in the writing of the Bible. That's done. That was a first century deal. The Bible is written and that's over. There's a ministry of the Holy Spirit that has ceased. Also, most charismatics will admit the gift of apostleship has ceased. That's the official position of Calvary Chapel, for example. So in that regard, according to the spiritual gift of apostleship, they're cessationists. They believe that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit has ceased. What's interesting is how they argue for the cessation of apostleship. They simply say that the function of the apostles and prophets was to lay the foundation of the church. The foundation has been laid, so the gift of apostleship was no longer needed, and it passed away. And to that, we would say, that's absolutely right. It's just that they need to realize that's also the explanation for the cessation of the authenticating signs of the apostles and prophets. So to simplify this, the the case is pretty simple. In the New Testament, God used apostles and prophets to deliver all this new revelation in a time of transition, to lay the foundation for the church. When God stopped giving that new revelation, though, the apostles died off, the New Testament was finished. Well, there's no longer need for these sign gifts because there's no longer a need for these spokesmen. All the revelation is done. There are no more spokesmen because the revelation is complete. And so it's not surprising that there's no more authenticating signs that go with the spokesmen. Spokesmen are gone. It all rests now on the sufficiency of Scripture. So like I said, it makes perfect sense for the sign gifts to fade out of use. God was no longer giving new direct revelation to apostles and prophets. And so accordingly, he's no longer giving sign gifts to authenticate these people as coming from God. This is verified in the New Testament. The apostles were unique in calling. Again, some today claim the apostles are still around. You can be an apostle. Of course, the New Testament defines apostles as having seen the risen Lord. So that's kind of a problem. But the New Testament recognizes the foundational nature of apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. They laid the foundation, and once the foundation was done, it's over. You move on to building the house. And so it goes with the New Testament apostles and prophets. They belong to this foundational period of the church, 
We call it the apostolic era, the first century. And after their work was finished of of adding new revelation to the church, remember Jesus didn't write anything, it's all from the apostles and prophets, the New Testament. Once their work was finished, the foundation was laid, they're gone, they're off the scene, they die out, and there are no more apostles and prophets. Once the foundation was laid, they moved on, and the gifts passed away as well. Keep in mind, these sign gifts in the New Testament, they're always tied to the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Listen to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul is defending his apostleship. Why should you believe I'm an apostle? Paul says, look, I perform the signs of an apostle, which is what? Signs and wonders and miracles. This explains why in the New Testament there's a decline in the sign gifts, like healing. You look at as time goes on in the New Testament itself, there's a lack of healing. Paul, he's beaten up many times, but he doesn't heal himself. He seeks medical attention. Paul had an affliction near the Galatians, probably an eye disease, but he doesn't heal himself. He's not healed by someone else. He just suffers. Timothy had a stomach ailment, wasn't healed. Paul prescribed basically a form of medicine for him. Epaphroditus got ill. Paul didn't heal him. Trophimus got ill. Paul left him sick. Paul, why would you leave like your buddy sick? Just heal him. Paul clearly had the gift of healing, but there's already an impression that the New Testament wears on and revelation is added. The gifts were already becoming less and less. This also explains the shift from apostles and prophets to pastors and elders. This is a big deal. This explains in the New Testament why the shift goes away from apostles and prophets to pastors and elders. You ever wonder, why is the church not run by apostles and prophets? Why, did it, why is it supposed to be run, according to the New Testament, by pastors and elders? Where apostles and prophets, they're higher, that's a higher office than pastors and elders. Why wouldn't God prescribe to appoint apostles in every church and prophets? Why elders? Why pastors? And at the same time, for elders and pastors, there's only one spiritual gift essentially required of them. And it's what? Teaching. Why is it not required for pastors and elders to have the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues or the gift of healing? That seemed like way more valuable. Like, you want to listen to my sermon, let me heal first and now listen to my sermon. It seems like it'd be a much more effective gift. Why is it that the only gift required for pastors and elders, the leaders of the church, uh, thereafter is just teaching? You get the point? It just indicates that these gifts were passing away because the apostles and prophets were passing away. They fulfilled their function. Foundation was laid. And so off they go. This also explains James 5. When someone is sick, you call for the elders. Why don't we call for the healers? Why do we need to call for the elders? They don't have the gift of healing. Why am I not calling for the healers when someone is sick? Because the gift of healing was not normative. The point is, you call on godly men because the prayers of a righteous man can't accomplish much. It's not the gift of healing in James 5. It's just praying for the sick. But this explains why the the vast emphasis in the New Testament is on the ministry of the word. Because God always knew this new revelation was going to be complete and then it would be sufficient. You don't need another word from the Lord. He's given you everything you need. You don't need to wonder, what does God want me to do? What's his will for your life? This is sufficient. It's called the sufficiency of scripture. 
It's for all of life and godliness. He's already delivered everything you need. So that, that's why we, we don't, we're not in any lack in the past 1900 years of not having these gifts. We already have the completed revelation. The bottom line is this. Charismatics fail to understand that things today are not like they were then. We should not expect life in the book of Acts to be exactly like life today. Because the book of Acts took place during the apostolic era. This is not the apostolic era. Things should be different. The book of Acts is not normative for the church. Charismatics admit that much, but they fail to realize this means also that the associated gifts of the apostles and prophets, tongues, prophecy, healing, are also gone as well. It perfectly explains why after that era, the church has universally recognized these gifts have passed away. Well, we'll leave it there. We could, we could go on, but I told you, just one night, one shot. So that's all you're going to get. You could talk about church history. You could talk about the, the beginnings, the sordid beginnings of the Pentecostal movement. You could talk about the false... It is quite sordid if you study it, yeah. Uh, you could talk about the documented false signs, false healings. You could talk about the large portion of immorality and disqualified leaders. You could talk about all the false teaching that has spawned from the charismatic movement, like the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement. You could talk about the countless testimonies of those who've come out of the movement, verifying it's a work of the flesh. But I'll just leave you with a warning from Matthew 7. Just be discerning. Be discerning. Jesus in Matthew 7 warns of the broad gate and the broad way that leads to destruction. And there are many who find it. And right after that, he says, beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he gives this warning that we read, we read so much, but just listen again to this warning in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you practice lawlessness we often talk about the verse as a warning against you know false believers but do you ever pay attention to what they were claiming as proof of their salvation we were doing signs and wonders and there's no indication that they that they didn't really do it it's just they were false signs and wonders. New Testament talks about the reality of false signs and wonders. Christ, isn't it interesting how Christ chose that as an example of the category of false believers who get turned away and judged because they claimed a form of spirituality, but Christ wasn't really their Lord. They lived in lawlessness, not true faith, and were known by false signs and wonders. Isn't that quite interesting at the very least? I do not believe Charismatics are all unsaved by any means. I say many of them, I, I don't know numbers, but they're true believers. They love the Lord. I love them. They're not the enemy. But at the same time, there's a lot of false teaching out there. And like anything, there's a spectrum of moderates who try and take the Bible seriously. Like, for example, the Calvary Chapel movement. I respect, I love, I appreciate them, although I disagree with their conclusions. But there's a fringe word of faith that goes into clear false teaching. Either way, be discerning. Be wise, shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. We must be discerning. Ultimately, we have a movement that 
in essence, forsakes God's written revelation for their own so-called own subjective revelation, that's a bad trade. I don't want to trade this revelation for another revelation. If there's going to be more revelation, well, it must accord to this and, and come by this, and it just doesn't. What we have today just doesn't accord with the written revelation, which should be our foundation for all things. At the end of the day, we submit to the truth of God's word. So look, just prove it to me here. Show me a chapter, show me a verse that fits everything today, and I'll believe you, because we submit to this authority. But the charismatic movement in doctrine and in practice has failed to do that, and that's why we're not a charismatic church. So I know it's a a load for you, quite a lot. Um, Time is up. I'm going to pray and close. But any questions at all, come see me. I'd love to talk to you about it. And if this strikes a chord with you and you want to study it further, I can give you tons of resources or even study the Bible with you further and try and answer all your questions. But with that, we will close. So let me pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this time. Granted, talking about, for many, uh, a controversial topic, certainly striking a chord with some. Uh, But Lord, we're called not to shy away from any subject. We just want to know the truth. We want to know what's true, what's not. We want to be humble and gracious, Lord, and for that, we simply submit to your word. You've given us what we need for life and godliness, and, and we, we want to submit to that and know it. And so help us to, to study with humble eyes, open eyes, careful and discerning with your word. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to miss out. If the Spirit is working today in ways that are legitimate, we should be earnestly desiring the greater gifts. But if not, we also want to be careful and discerning because that could be a real uh, pitfall for the church and real troubling as well. So grant us this humility, this wisdom to cut it straight. At the end of the day, Lord, we have to rest on what has been written, everything we need for life and godliness. And may we do this with everything. May we compare everything to your word. And if it doesn't fit, no, we cut it out. We, we, have, we need nothing else but what your word prescribes for us. On this solid rock we stand, and we can do no other. So keep us in your truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.